Hey, just real quick before this podcast gets started, I want to let you know that we had a little audio issues. We got a little passionate as we had this dialogue. And so uh, there's a couple times throughout this podcast where we're hitting the table. It's going to mess with the audio just a little bit, but I'm excited for you to hear it. Excited for you to hear from Will. Uh, it's going to be a great podcast. What's up, y'all? Welcome to Say That to Say This. I am one of your hosts, Jason Watson. We are really excited to be here with you this evening. Um, we have a special guest, and I'm going to kick it over to Josh and let him introduce our guest. Oh, it's not the evening. It is like <laughs> mid-afternoon, man. It just mid feels like the evening. Is that what it is? Hey, maybe so. Maybe so. So, hey, uh, uh, I'm, in, I'm insanely excited to, uh, uh, to talk today, uh, one, uh, because we have had three podcasts uh, thanks everybody for listening, but this is the first podcast that we have uh, a special guest. This uh, handsome man to my left is uh, Wilford Pinckney. Uh, uh, this man has become a, uh, a dear friend of mine. Um, he's also uh, recently, as of September 24th, stepped in uh, through the city to be the, let me get this official title right, uh, is the head for the Office of Children, Youth, and Families. So, uh, Will, thanks for uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. Thank you, thank you. And for us old men, it is after the hey, evening. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like I know, man. I know. <laughs> but no, I appreciate this. Like this is, I, I didn't even know what to expect. Right? You know, you got this room, you got this great room, great equipment, great organization. So I appreciate coming down and speaking about. You know what's going on? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, a couple things, a couple reasons why I wanted to uh, uh, make sure that we got you on this podcast. One, because I've gotten the chance to know you probably over the last six months, and uh, man, my respect for you and what you've done. Uh, you've just been a really good friend, and I uh, love what you're doing in St. Louis. Uh, on top of that, here's here's where I want to go today. Uh, so, on top of that, you are uh, a man that's been in the game for a long period of time. Uh, you, I want you to share a little bit of your story. Um, you spent a lot of time as a police officer. Uh, you spent a lot of time uh, in New York. You did a fellowship that brought you to St. Louis. And the thing that I think I, uh, I appreciate about you the most uh, is sitting in your office uh, and you beginning to talk about what's taking place in St. Louis and, and what we uh, have been up, up against, what St. Louis struggle looks like. Yet at the same time, you have all of this experience that you've pulled on, your optimism and your love for this city uh, is contagious. Agreed. And uh, it's one of the things that, man, uh, you know, we've been in the game uh, on the ground for a long period of time. Oftentimes you can get discouraged. Oftentimes uh, we get to see, we have this front row view of heartache. Yeah, we remain incredibly optimistic. And so to watch somebody like you with the experience that you've had to come in and be like, man, it's not that hard. It's not that bad. We've got this. Uh, is just uh, something that's, man, endured me to you um, probably more than anything else. So uh, I want to hear your story. Would you share that with us? Uh, and then we'll uh, we'll just make fun of you and, and ping knows, you with questions. He knows it's tough because I don't like to talk about myself. So I'll just be like, oh, man. Yeah, he did set me up. He, me. That's he said right, that to right. say this. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Oh, I hear that. I like that, too. That's catchy. Um, listen, I'm always empowered and, you know, encouraged, energized by the people that I meet in places. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yeah, I am positive. I do love St. Louis. It's a great place, but I don't think the story's told enough about the people like yourselves, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you are what brings energy to someone like me. I stayed here in this job because I was working with people like you guys, mm -hmm. right? And that I sort of your programs and the things you were doing, and you invited me in, you know? Uh, so that's what encourages me. And my history and my past encourages me. 
I did grow up in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. I was born in the late 60s. I'm not giving you no years, but Boogie, man. <laughs> yeah, I Boogie, told you that man. much, so it don't matter. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I was I grew up in the Bronx when you saw all those old movies and mm -hmm. kids running around yeah. drinking out of fire hydrants. That's Absolutely. why I don't get sick because like I, I'm like a cockroach. Everything, you know. Um, but you know, playing in abandoned buildings, a lot of conditions that I see in some parts of the city here, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, and coming from that and being blessed enough. To be able to be in the mayor's office in the city of St. Louis, yeah. now. I mean, how could you not be optimistic? Right? right, absolutely. And so, you know, my time as a police officer was, I was a beat officer for a while. So explain that a little bit. So you know, we hear a lot about community policing and all that mm -hmm. stuff now, right? Community policing was first brought to New York City by Lee Brown. I don't know if you mm -hmm. remember Lee Brown, um, African American who was from Houston. He was the first a police chief in Houston. He came from the West Coast, but he's considered the father of community policing. So he brought it to the New York City Police Department. Was this in response at all to the broken window theory? Did no, this is before. Role? I don't want to get too much in the okay. weeds, but broken window theory has been around. The theory has been around since the early '80s. Okay, it was never really applied to policing until later in the '80s and started in Boston. Okay, um, but no, community policing grew out of an. Uh, it was the main branch of policing theory in the 80s and mm. mid 80s especially there was a lot of work done through Harvard mm. and their executive session on policing okay. and so it was really about problem solving right mm. how do we instead of just going out arresting people and you know being reactive how do we think about why crime happens how do we mm. engage the community yeah. and Sounds work like with the community what we've been talking about lately yeah there you go okay there you go tracking you know, what is old is new again <laughs> right and so the, you know a lot of really smart, maybe some not so smart, we know how that goes, people came together at Harvard and they brought together these police leaders from all over the country and you can even look this up online and find out information about it, I tell you guys to look it up. And they came around and they started talking about how can we change how policing is done. Hmm. There was this belief at, and this might sound familiar too, there was this belief at one point in the late 70s and early 80s that there's nothing police can do about crime, hmm. right? And these people this is doing the Reagan era crack is flooding, mm -hmm, uh, crack. cocaine is flooding mm -hmm. in the cities, and yeah, okay. And so these people came together from the law enforcement and said, "Well, yeah, there is something we can do." And it wasn't about arrest; it was about how do we engage the community? Mm -hmm. How do we get police officers? How do we go back? And you've heard this recently too. How do we go back to when we had police on foot yep. in communities? Yes, talking to yep. community, walking the beat, right? Yep. Just being a part of community. just being a part of the community. In some places, that's easier than others mm -hmm. because of the geographics of the place. Absolutely. Right? So when I joined the police department in 1989, Lee Brown came in in 1990, early 1990, mm -hmm. and he started instituting community policing. And it wasn't just what you hear about now. So there's a difference between police community relations and community policing. Mm -hmm. Community policing is a philosophy that's supposed to permeate from the top to, to the, the bottom, bottom of the organization. Yeah, you can have beat cops that are just out there right. walking talk, but that's not a philosophy. That's just a program or something. Correct. Do. Right. But you want to have this philosophy that it is about the community. Needs to be the DNA. Needs to be the DNA. Mm -hmm. Needs to be in training. It needs to be in all the programming that's done. So David Dinkins, who you may know, was the first African-American mayor of New York City. Um, you know, he was seen as, you know, this wishy-washy person. But when he came in and he passed a program called Safe Streets, Safe Cities, and this is where there was a tax passed. They were gonna they were gonna beef up the police department, but they also beefed up juvenile programs hmm. and community programs, yeah. things to engage kids, try to find employment for kids. You know, it was a recession. There was a lot of 
Yes. Similar things that are going sure. on in St. Louis. Yeah. Right? So, so, so me this, in light of in light of some of the conversations that are being had now as it relates to police officers, minorities, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about your experience as an African American in the police department in New York. What did that look like? What did it feel like? Even the state of New York, like like Absolutely. how did this come about? What, and are there any similarities to what we're experiencing on the Well, so the state of New York at that time, especially when I started and we first came in. Uh, you had the Central Park jogger incident, which everybody knows mm-hmm. about from, yep. you know, when they see us. Yeah. Um, you had Bernard Getz, who had killed a person on the train, who a young man who was he thought was going to attack him, but was basically begging. You, so you had a lot of racial unrest in the city. Mm-hmm. Even in the early parts of the 90s, you had um, Rodney King. It was a lot of racial yeah. unrest in the country. Mm-hmm. It was New York City, all the framing around the Central Park Five was that the city was out of control. There was so much crime and violence. There were probably, at that time, around 2,000 homicides a year. Mm. So almost about six a day at mm. its peak. Think about that. Six mm. homicides a day. You know, you had the roving, what we consider roving bands. People saw black and brown kids as mm. a danger. Yep. Yep. They're going all throughout Central, um, Times Square and all that. So you had this perception of you know, black and brown kids. Black criminality. Black mm-hmm. criminality, right? And so that was the picture, and people were like, we have to do something, mm. right? The city's too yeah. unsafe. We have to get it. Does it sound familiar? Yeah, very familiar. We have to get a handle yeah. on crime, right? And so the response from some people was, let's be more um, enforcement-oriented, mm-hmm. right? Lock them up. We got to get police out there. We got to get more police. The police department, so you talk about here, the police department being down 130 people. Well, the New York City Police Department at that time was down over 5,000 officers. 5,000? Mm. Yeah. At the, when I first joined the police department at that time, probably had around 24,000, 25,000 officers. By the time I got on and they really sort of raised the level, at one point it got up to 40,000. Goodness. Mm. So you talk about you know numbers and you talk about the numbers here, well... Once again, if people say we got to do something, we need more police, we need more safety, yeah. that's what the focus was in many circles. But Dave Dinkins came in and said, he born in Lee Brown, and said, no, we need community police. We do need more cops, but we need cops to be out in the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to empower the yep. community. So I became a beat officer in uh, 44th Precinct, which is the Highbridge area, probably the poorest congressional area in the country. Mm. Um, it's on the south east side of the Bronx, southwest side of the Bronx, the Yankee Stadium area. Mm. And I walked a beat that was probably uh, about a square mile, a half mile wide by half mile long. Okay. Mm. And I walked it by myself. And my job was to get to know the people, the residents, the business owners. Yeah. It was, you know, if I had to make a rest, I had to make a rest. But what I really focused on, if I had lots on my um, beat. And if there were a bunch of abandoned cars, I would call up sanitation or whoever to come sure. get the cars and take them out of the lot. If there were broken lights, I would interact with that city agency. So it wasn't just about arrest. It was more about trying to, this is where broken windows might come in, trying to fix up those blighted conditions. Yes, community safety. Community safety, Mm -hmm. lighting, whatever it needed to be. If business owners needed something, you know, Mm -hmm. working with them, talking with them. Yeah, And so I got solving problems for residents and That's right. And engaging with the kids. They were kids, kids slinging on the corner. Yeah, that's you. Right. You know, they knew that if I had to arrest them, I would, but otherwise, they're human beings. Right. So I knew them, I knew their families, I would talk to them, try to encourage them. 
unfortunately, you know, the same old story back then. After a while, if you've been locked up enough, who's going to give you a job? Yeah, and all those things. Yeah, sure. But you're still trying to encourage people. But that was what my job was. And it, I wasn't the only one in that precinct. It was mm. many of us walking the footpost. But that's what we did. We just walked around for eight hours. Mm. You know, from one end to the other, crosswise. And hey, people, you get to know the people in the churches. You get to know everybody. Yeah. And people, I can remember one time there was a hostage situation. Or I thought it was a hostage situation. And I was, I think I had already left my beat. And they called me back because they, they wanted to know if I knew the person so that now maybe I can help engage that person to resolve this situation in a way that yeah. nobody would get hurt. And so that's the type of stuff you... You were seen as, right? Yeah, I know. You were seen as that yeah. liaison. It's just interesting yeah. to think about being both an advocate for someone as well as being a part Reminds of, me of uh, what we're trying to institute here, the cops and clinicians, mm -hmm. you know, where a lot of community health workers or, mm -hmm. you know, riding with police officers mm -hmm. and trying to engage and provide resources rather than arrest someone because you realize that if there's an issue within that home, you can arrest someone, but if you don't deal with the issue, yeah. you're just going to continue to be rearresting those individuals. Right. So why not meet them, That's provide right. the resources to get them out of the circumstance That's so right. that the officers are now not dealing with a small crime, so to speak, right. and they can focus on other things. So it's, And I want to hit, there, there's a couple of things that I want to hit. Um, you know, cops and clinicians, uh, I think, mm -hmm. is, a, is a good example. Also, some of the stuff that's happening in, in courtroom mm -hmm. B. Before we get to, to present day and some of these initiatives, Beat Cop, on the ground, 20-plus years of experience. Mm -hmm. um, how did that experience, being a police officer, lead to this Fuse Fellowship oh, wow. to St. Louis? Like, well, mm -hmm, you know, because mm -hmm. there's also a piece that, that you haven't hit on is, like, why'd you sign up? Yeah, yeah. There, but there's a, this string of, like, uh, there's this beautiful string of, like, your love for people in the midst of everything you've done. So I'd love just to kind of hear, like, how you... So I remember I grew up in the Bronx, right? But I didn't grow up necessarily like the people that I was engaging. You know, I grew up in the projects, and my parents eventually mm -hmm. were, able, we were able to move away from that. So I had experience in living in mm -hmm. some of the conditions, but at the point when I became a cop, I wasn't living in those right. And sometimes people get twisted with that, right? Just because mm -hmm. you're from a place... And you've experienced something. If you're not experiencing it now, yep. you can't uh, yeah, act like you know it. I always different. tell even the guys I work with, like, yeah, I'm from the streets. I've mm -hmm. done all of those things. But that mindset, I don't have anymore. Right. And that's what helps you understand the fabric of why decisions are made that's and why right. people do certain that's things. Right. So. But you know what it also does, and it did for me, is you start to ask questions. Like, why is it these communities are consistently that way? Mm -hmm. Right? And those are the questions that started to raise them, because I moved from community policing, I went into narcotics, I did undercover work for a while, and so I, I saw the department from many different angles, but yeah. one thing that never changed was the way communities mm. were, and which communities that always had the highest crime rates, the highest poverty rates, you know, why is it that I see all this change, because from the time I joined the police department until the time I left, New York changed a lot, Right. and there was a lot of change in a lot of neighborhoods, everybody talks about Brooklyn now and gentrification, yeah. But I can go back to the same neighborhood I walked to be in, and that ain't gentrified. Mm. So why is that? Right? Yeah. Intentionally, man. <laughs> right, right. Mm -hmm. um, and even if it isn't intentional, it doesn't matter. It's still not gentrified. Right. Right? Like, <laughs> and we don't necessarily want gentrification in a bad way, uh -huh. but communities should evolve. Absolutely. So I say when I got about halfway through um, my time, I, I started going back to school because I went to school right out of high school. I mean, college right out of high school, but okay. I didn't finish right away. Mm. I was the first person in my family to go to college. Mm. So, you know, it just wasn't my thing. I mean, I was a smart student, but 
because college isn't just about being smart. Yeah, sure. So I came back and I worked. I never wanted to be a cop. I never. There was never anything I pursued. Mm. There wasn't ever. Did you lose a, a bet? What happened? No, never a dream. Well, you know what happened? I came back from college. I worked for a shoe store for a while. I worked in a bank for well, I worked for a shoe store for a year, a bank for a year, and then I started taking tests because mm. it's like I gotta yeah. get a job. I right, go right. Back to school. So I t- started taking police tests. I, you know, I was like, all right, whatever, it's a job, right? Right. But it wasn't until I really started the application process where I was like, oh man, this would be cool. Yeah. Right. Right. I get a chance to do this and have be who I am. Right. Absolutely. And that type right. of job, right? Because you bring who you are to that job. Absolutely. You're supposed to. Right. Sure. Oh, you're supposed to. You shouldn't let the job change you. And so, you know, just seeing all that when I finally went back to school and finished my bachelor's, I wanted to go get a master's and. And talking to one of my mentors and advisors, you know, I just talked about a lot of stuff. We're talking about, I was like, what should I do, right? I want to leverage my experience mm. uh, with the things I want to do. I, want to, I don't want to just mm-hmm. get a degree just to get a degree. Right. And, he, you know, his policy came up. It kept coming back in our public policy, public mm-hmm. policy. And that's what I wound up going back to school for. But why did I do that? So I could start to help get answers to the question. Got it. Mm. Because it is about people, right, in the end. Yeah, for sure. And unless we really delve into that, I mean, policy is what makes things change. Mm-hmm. In the end, you need policy makers, yep. you need people thinking about policies yep. to, in fact, change. You know, we can march all we want, and we should. Mm-hmm. We can do whatever way you have of raising consciousness yep. and conversations, mm-hmm. we should. But in the end, people have to go in and write and create policies. Mm-hmm. So in becoming that, um, I started teaching when I was about six years before I retired, I think, because I wanted to now get into the classroom. I want to start engaging young people. You want to have direct contact with situations. Because, because once again, now I'm older. Not mm-hmm. only am I not in that environment anymore and in that mentality, but I'm also old. I wasn't that old, but mm-hmm. for kids, right? You're old, right? But now I can see and I can keep up with what is going on in the minds of young people because we don't listen enough, as people say. And so for me, and and we don't get challenged enough. Unfortunately, there are people who advocate on behalf of black and brown people. When you say that, do you mean generationally? Um, Somewhat, but I'm just talking about people who have the ability to impact our youth. Gotcha. So my, I say that because I've been in institutions of higher education. I taught for 11 years. I ran a program for a couple of years, a criminal justice program. And there are people who advocate on behalf of black and brown people, but they look at them and say, well, that's the best he can do, so I'm going to accept mediocre. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'm, what am I doing? set your ceiling for you. I'm setting mm-hmm. your ceiling for you. Well, I don't want to do that. I'm going and I'm challenging you. I'm going to do it with love and... Do, right. You know, I'm going to shoot for you to get here, and if you fall short, that's fine. But right. I'm going to let yep. you know Here's the expectation. there's no, yep. there's no reason that you shouldn't think you can get yep. there just like everybody yep. else. Because when you graduate from a college, nobody cares what the degree says. They, ex- they have expectations, though. Yep. So whether you get a criminal mm-hmm. justice degree from the best school in the country or the worst school in the country, you're competing for the same job. Yeah, you still, yeah, you still Nobody's got that Nobody's going to go, oh, well, you're black <laughs> or brown. Sure. And, you know, so we'll still give you the job. Right. You know, it's not going to happen. It matters. So that led me to that experience. And that experience helped me with, you know, you obviously know a lot of facilitation I do. Well, I learned about that in that engagement. Because mm-hmm. now I learned how to get into a classroom, learn how to connect and understand people, and, under, and to listen. Yeah. 
Because it's not just about me teaching you something. It's also about understanding how you learn. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, which is important. So, which is no, no, but you know, this is what helps you develop as a person. So, I am who I am in terms of my love for people and how I interact with people. But you have, you still have to build that up. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're, you're not complete. You still learn and improve all the time. And so, and that's where maybe my optimism comes from is that I love learning. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I don't ever assume I know it all. I mean, I hope I don't present that way. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> learn from everybody Absolutely. that I. And that can't fix that. So, you know, I did that work. Um, I wound up retiring, doing, I went to full time teaching a little more. I started doing some training and stuff. But I, I'm always that person like that has that hunger to find that right niche for myself. Yep. Mm. Because, like I said, I've always wanted, I love public policy, I love learning. But the challenge comes in when you're really trying to be an advocate yep. for policy is how many layers are above you. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right, because I could be, I could have all the greatest intentions, all the greatest thoughts, smart mind, but there's always people that want to hold you down so or no power. box you in. No power. You have the right? talent, you have the gifted, mm -hmm. you Experience. have all of those pieces, but, but you, you don't have power. the power. Right, and so mm -hmm. we need, like I go back to, we need those people in the street having power in that way, but we need people in positions of power, right, mm -hmm. who are not afraid to say what it yep. is. And that's real positions of power. We talked right. about this a couple episodes ago, just the reality of not just makeshift power work. Right. It appears that you have power, right. but really the ability to make decisions and not be right. cornered in by certain types of red that's tape. Right. And, that's right. You know, being trusted that that's you right. know where things should go yeah, and what should right. happen. That's right. And your expertise, you know, and what you bring to the that's table. Right. So. And unfortunately, there's still circumstances where this is just not enough enough people of color in a room mm -hmm. when people are making decisions that affect people of color. Mm -hmm. And so the fellowship, you talk about the fellowship, how I got there, well, my, my professional experience and educational experience, some people would probably look at it and say he's sort of all over the place because he's done all these different mm -hmm. things. Uh, and it, when I saw this opportunity for this fellowship, it was like, it spoke to me as these are people who are looking at equity, looking at social impact, they're looking to go to cities where things are happening. We all pay attention to the federal government and the president and all that, but they're really, that stuff isn't going to affect most people. Right. If you really want to have a real impact on people, it's, it's at yeah. the local yeah. level. Absolutely. State level. State or local level. Mm -hmm. And so that's what attracted me to the fellowship. And I was attracted, when I know, quite frankly, I was attracted to St. Louis because of the black leadership that mm. was existing in St. Louis. Mm. I didn't know a whole lot about St. Louis. I, I knew some. How'd you learn about that? Uh, reading, doing research, you know, mm. if I, when I hear about an opportunity, I'm going to get on Google and I'm going to start just put in St. Louis and go through the news and see what's going what's on. What's there, what the climate looks like. And so... So who were some of those leaders that yeah. stood out to you from the city? Well, I saw we had Kim Gardner here, a black mm -hmm. prosecutor, Judge Edwards, who was a black public safety mm -hmm. director, Lacey Chief Clay. Hayden, mm -hmm. who, was a, yeah, who was a black police chief, Lacey Clay, who was a mm -hmm. black representative. So... Like, hey, this is a place <laughs> where, and I knew, obviously, I also knew the challenges because right. I, I can right. read, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's fine, but like I said, those challenges to me, and when I first came in, when I met you, like, I've seen that before. Yeah. I've seen that movie before. Right. So, so what? Yes. That's just what it is now. The that isn't what it is forever. Right. And as long as we can get in and have people who can really 
bring uh, resources to bear, bring more importantly information. So right. knowledge is power. Absolutely. Right? That old saying is so funny, but it is. So we met you um, during that fellowship period, mm -hmm. and a bit of the fellowship kind of got tweaked a little bit. You were mm -hmm. beginning to find kind of different niches, which is uh, <laughs> uh, 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 interesting in itself. I think if I'm a listener to this, right, black, white, whatever, in the St. Louis area or beyond, um, hearing your story, your, uh, your optimism, right, shines through. Uh, everybody's going to want to jump to solutions, this and that, which is way more complicated, right? Everybody just wants the, the easy answer. That's so right. much more complicated right. than that. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think there are some really beautiful examples, that you, things that you have championed as you've come on here. So uh, ended the fellowship ended, and then you came on staff with the city. Mm -hmm. Will you talk a little bit about some of the things that you have uh, had your hand in some of the programs that are that, uh, that are launching some of the things that are giving you hope or where you're seeing the the, the bar begin to, to, to move I know cops and clinicians was mentioned earlier mm -hmm. uh, talk a little bit about that oh wow so my hands are full of a lot of fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised I still got fingers left. Right. I'm putting my hands in places that people people probably it's good man. keep your hands out no of it's good I came as a disruptor you know that's what that fellowship was about coming and mm -hmm. be a disruptor yeah. Um, so, you know, when I first came here, one of the things that I quickly realized was that there wasn't a lot of coordination. I'm sure everybody knows this is very True. fragmented. There's a lot of people who, a lot of organizations that are, were created to help the community, but there are a lot of organizations and they're sort of all competing against each other. Yeah, sure. And this is what you notice coming in. This is what I okay. notice coming in. I tell people now, I say it's like an AAU basketball team, <laughs> right? So if my kid don't make the team, I'm going to go create my own team. <laughs> I can, coach him. Play. Yeah, my, I can coach him. I can play, and that's what happens, right? And that, you know, and that's not just here, but that is definitely here. But what I did find too was that people were willing to come together. Somebody just had to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that was how I started by who are the people that need to be together, and asking those people, hey, would it be, would you, would you mind, or would you be interested in mm -hmm. coming together around yeah. X, Y, Z, being a connector, and. We started doing that. Um, we level set. We, we found common values and common goals, and then it just took off yeah. from there. Mm. And so that led to a lot of discussion around, to me, one of the big things here, and one of the most important things is, how do we connect people to services, mm. right? Yeah. And one of the things I saw in thinking, I came here thinking about bail reform, right? That bail reform was so narrow, and you know, you've heard this before. Mm -hmm. It's so narrow, it's about one point in time when the judge is making the decision mm -hmm. about whether someone is detained or not. Mm -hmm. Well, in the end, to me, it's not about, it is about detaining. We don't want people detained. Mm -hmm. But it's also about, even if they're not detained, is that it? Is that our only, is that the end of our responsibility? Right. Right? Yeah, are we responsible to our community? Do we care about our community? Yep. Now, everybody doesn't want help. And this right. is about forcing help on people. Of course. But it is about offering help to people. Mm -hmm. yep. Allow them to be the determinant of whether they accept it. Absolutely. Or not. But I think we fall short if we don't at least give people the opportunity to say, we are here to help you. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that's where a lot of my focus was, and that led to some of the work with cops and clinicians, which some people have started that before I got here, so I'm not trying to take full... Um, you want all the glory. No, Ever since I've known you, you just know, glory is me. <laughs> <laughs> I know, just, right? Just a joke. No, I want all the glory. <laughs> but what I, did was, what I did do in regards to that was help bring all the people that needed to be at the table to the table, mm -hmm. to challenge people to think beyond some box that they put this program yeah. strategy or whatever explain it real quick what is cops and clinicians so cops and clinicians is a co-responder model it's built on a program we keep calling ours cops and clinicians but it's really not mm -hmm. cops and clinicians is the prototype program from new haven mm -hmm. where uh, social workers ride along with police officers 
and it's focused mostly on young people in trauma mm -hmm. that they engage in to try and help connect those children to organizations, to a organization that can help prevent that trauma from affecting them as they right. get older, right? And obviously, if you help kids, you have to help families. Absolutely. Because the children exist yeah, in the context of family. family. Yep. So it's about really going out there and proactively engaging people mm -hmm. to say, hey, what do you need? I'm Absolutely. simplifying it, but what do you need? Mm -hmm. And then figuring out, well, if they need this, then who do we connect them with? Right. Right? And this is so that we can do what's called deflection. You'll hit the deflection, you'll hit diversion. Really, that's supposed of work to be a deflection. direct contact, too. So this it's not just contact. a phone call. Hey, can no. you help out Jimmy? It's, what's up, John? I got Jimmy with that's me. I need right. to bring him to you. That's Make that right. direct connection to Jimmy. That's right. That's Absolutely. Right. That's right. We want to call Josh and say, you know, you're sitting around doing podcasts, but we got somebody to help. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you're sitting around talking to a lot of junk. Absolutely. So, no, we want to be able to call people. And, and so we started with that premise, and then we had to say, well, you know what? What are the needs in St. Louis, mm -hmm. right? And do we really know what the needs are in St. Louis? Mm -hmm. So that's why we started this program, a pilot program, right? And so we want to get out there, and we've been doing that. We've been responding to what are called dispatch calls. Mm -hmm. So when people call the police around anything, you know, um, we've told officers who are out in the street, this social worker and this police officer in this car are out there, call them to the scene so yep. they can engage people. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go right away because there may be dangerous situations. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, we want to make sure people are receptive to it. So they're called out, and that's how that goes on. Yeah. And yeah. we know we got a bunch of friends of ours yeah. and just brothers that we love that have been a part of this. Mm -hmm. How's it working? I mean, we, we oh. get to hear we get to hear from Ryan, right, all the time. <laughs> yeah, but, Ryan, and um, shout out to Bethany and her team. That's over right. There. That's Ryan has been pushing Brooks, community Michael, health yeah. workers and this kind of work. So. That's right. That's right. No, but, I mean, it's just the beauty, right? Like the beauty of yeah. having a social worker, community health worker, mm -hmm. somebody that is like, hey, I have access to resources. Absolutely. Riding with a police officer, stepping in, saying like, hey, here's our options. Here's the resources that are available. And then also loving and caring for the family. Is, right. is beautiful. So and it's also recognizing that there's tension that exists. So let's bring in someone that looks like those we right. serve yep. so that when we run into this issue, it doesn't immediately escalate because that's I'm right. defensive. It's a police officer. I don't trust them. That's right. You're sending in someone that looks like them, that's dressed like them, that that's comes right. from where they come from, that's and they can just have conversation. That's right. And that's it's amazing, you know, so I'm definitely excited. So how's that been going? Oh, it's been going great. And so to both of your points, they one of the great things about it to me is that it does create a different dynamic. Mm. So the people that we've engaged, the people that the community health worker has engaged, are like, wow, someone's here to offer me help? Yeah. Right. Yeah. What's going on with this? Right? <laughs> this feels weird. That police officer could pull up and the person could feel like, oh, they're here to help me. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is great. Right? That's surprising. It's surprising, right? And the city, you know, that people may feel like the city has left them behind, yeah. right? I mean, let's be real. Yeah. And so this is like, no, this is, hmm. we are here to help you. And it ain't perfect or whatever, but we're trying and we're hmm. doing it. And we've been doing it. There's been hmm. great stories about the connections between the community health workers and the people that we've engaged with. Mm -hmm. And so that's been a great thing. And then another program that came out of that, you know about the community resource and need screenings. Brilliant, where, man. You know, when people get arrested, we're having those same community health workers um, engage with them to say, hey, mm. once again, what are some needs you have? And how can we help you with those needs? And where, where can we connect those people? And then again, the added bonus, I'd say the cherry on top is a lot of these are happening in that court part. Uh, information's making its way to the court part where people are getting bond hearings. Mm. And so now because the judges have to consider non-monetary conditions, 
and cash bail isn't an automatic, now we have people having the opportunity to be released with right. no bond. Because you guys yeah, have been Explain a that a little bit, because yeah. I don't know that everybody yeah. understands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, they created, so on July 1st, the Supreme Court of the state of Missouri passed new rules. Mm-hmm. So there's always been what are called bond hearings, which are determinations of whether you will be confined after your arrest or whether you get released, mm-hmm. you know, before cash bail or mm-hmm. on just personal recognizance, which mm-hmm. means we're not asking for any money. We're just saying, please come back. We trust that you're going to show up. Come back the next day, back the yep. Next day yep. right? And so based on that change in rules, I reached out to some people and said, hey, what can we do? How can we start to really try and make sure mm-hmm. we connect these people who are potentially going to be released? We're resources, once mm-hmm. again. I think we have that, op- that obligation mm-hmm. to at least try that. Right. And so we started the screenings. They're happening probably about four to six hours prior to this actual hearing, and it's called 16B, Division mm-hmm. 16B, in the 22nd Circuit downtown. Okay. And so the community health worker sits down, and I didn't talk about this last time, but even on Cops and Conditions, we're using a screening tool that looks at the social determinants of health. And mm-hmm. it looks at different categories to determine the severity of need. Gotcha. Is that so the self-sufficiency matrix? Arizona self-sufficiency okay. matrix. So what that does is it provides a score for the, each of those domains. When we capture those scores and we get that severity of need, now we're able, or that community health mm-hmm. worker who's from the community, who has some lived experience, can say, I know these organizations can help you with, with mm-hmm. making sure your lights stay on, making right. sure your rent gets paid if you need that. If you need some behavioral health service, we can do that. We can do mentoring. We can do job Absolutely. readiness. Anything. Yeah. Right? You at, and how it also helps you identify that part, how well they're doing over a course of time. You see That's growth right. in those areas as well. It does, and you know because you know community health workers once they help someone and connect them, they don't just leave them. Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. So there's still that contact, but because we do that, and because we we then are able to share that with consent from the people who we screen with the court, or at least with the defense attorney to say. We do know that these pers- this person has these needs, yep. but we also know these organizations can help them. Yep. Mm. And so because that happens, judges ultimately want to know, well, I don't want to just release someone who has needs and then they're going to just be back here next week. Yep. Mm. I want to know that someone's going to help them. Right. So when we can tell them, we know who can help them. Yep. And in fact, if we or there's past relationship, past mm-hmm. relationship, yep. right? Yep. Now the judge judge does say, in um, many cases, okay, you're released on your own cognizance. Just come back to court. It's, just, mm-hmm. it's unbelievably beautiful. Right? Okay, do this. Help people understand the value in that. Because I know for some, it's like, okay, we're talking about individuals who may or may not have committed a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a perspective of those individuals. Now we're talking about, you know, allowing those individuals to go free. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the value in being able to play a role in those courts and why it's important to be yeah. a voice for those individuals. Yeah. Well, the, definitely the value is if you can be released, like you say, you haven't, we don't know whether you committed a crime, mm-hmm. right? You're accused of it. Um, if you can be released, I do the simplest thing is you can go back to work that day mm-hmm. or the next day, Very whenever, true. depending on when it is, right? And I know this from having been a cop. <laughs> so when I was a cop and I was a community police officer, I arrested people. Um, obviously, that's what I did. Right. Um, and I would always ask those people, like, do you have a job? Do you have to go to work? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they weren't going to get released, so I'd say, do you want me to call your job? Mm-hmm. I would call the job and say, hey, listen, the person's helping us out with investigation, so we kept them. They couldn't make work mm-hmm. today. You know, I knew they were going to get out the yeah, next yeah, yeah. day. So I did that to help them so that they didn't have a problem with their job. So wow. that's one of the simplest. And that's community people, police. That's community <laughs> police. I mean, there are, I don't control whether you get released or not. 
Um, and it, in these cases, yeah. we're, we're having an impact on that. But mm-hmm. in, in that time, I didn't. But that didn't mean I couldn't help somebody sure. think about that, right? Because if you lose your job, then that's a burden on you. Absolutely. Right? If you had to pick up your kids, you know, that was another question you asked, yeah. right? Do you have to pick up any kids today? I don't know if police officers still do this. Well, if you do have to pick them up, is there somebody who, who can, can if you can? Can we help you make Can we help you make Can we do that? Reach out to somebody? Because I don't want, if you don't show up to pick up your kid, now a call's going to be made. Yep. Teachers and are mandatory reporters and yeah. all those other issues that can come. Sure. Yeah. And so there's always ways you can think about that impact of that moment in time. And maybe the person deserved to be arrested. To me, it's not about whether they deserve it or not whether they did or not, even if they did it, mm-hmm. or even if they did what they're accused of, it's not. It's about how do we treat them? How do we want them to be treated? Yeah. What is the right way to engage them and deal with that behavior? And just for a clear <clears throat> perspective for the viewers or the listeners, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about um, the crimes? Are these low-level crimes that you guys are allowing people to be released on? Or we're not talking about a murderer who we're just right. saying, hey, go free. So talk a little bit right, about right. that. Um, yeah, I mean, most of the time they're low-level crimes. Right? Okay. I will say, and I think there's some, I don't know if the perception's there that the police department here in the city doesn't make a ton of arrests, mm-hmm. right? They're not out there just blankly arresting you know, people, right? right? And so most of the, and I, so some of the work I did in the beginning as a Fuse fellow was, <clears throat> I worked with the police department to understand who they were arresting, mm. right? And they were open to it, and they did it. And Talk a little stuff. bit about that. So... <clears throat> It's important for police departments to understand who they're arresting and who they may need to detain or who they can oftentimes release without having them go all the way through the booking process, right? Mm. And so the police department took part in this. They had to because it was their information their day that they were willing to do it to say, what is that breakdown? Are, what, are there a lot of people on felonies? Are there a lot of people on misdemeanors? Are there a lot of people with bench warrants? Like, who are those people? Mm. Because it's important that the police department and they, they have agreed to this and they bought into this. You want to detain people for as few t- hours as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Because the other challenge is the longer you detain someone, most of these bond hearings happen with, within 24 hours. It mm-hmm. can be up to 48 hours. But the longer I'm in a cell with 20 other people, yep. having showered, having eaten, yep. man, maybe I'm, there's medication I need to take that I haven't taken. Sure. You're just inviting chaos, chaos mm-hmm. problems. People are going to potentially act out. Mm-hmm. That aren't just acting out on purpose, especially when it's a low level crime. So <clears throat> the question becomes: How can we get people through that booking process as quickly as possible? Especially the ones we know are going to be. Yep. So, and most of the time, most of the arrests are for lower level crimes, right? I mean, even as bad as crime is in St. Louis, we're not locking up eight murderers a night. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Thank God. Yeah, you know, so, so that's why, you know, people think about crime in a lot of ways, but the majority of people who are arrested are arrested on lower level crimes. And I don't think the police department would dispute that. They're most concerned about people with serious crimes. Absolutely. Yeah. As uh, they should be. And unfortunately, we're, we're probably spending a lot more time, and the data shows the police department spends a lot more time with people with either issues that shouldn't have contact with the police to begin with or mm-hmm. lower level crimes. Yeah. Right, so they don't have enough time to spend on people with those high-level crimes, and in fact, that's why they would argue people—they're not able to hold people to account for some of that. Right, hmm. yeah. it's just—I mean, it's a beautiful model, man. It's yeah. a—it's a really beautiful model. Uh, so, having to wrap this up, right? So, talk to us your experience as you look at 
um, some of the things that are in place now, breathe some of that optimism on. Like, where, where is St. Louis headed? What, what does this look like? What do, you, what do you see taking place? And then what's our role in it? Well, definitely St. Louis is headed in a good direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there are people now, I, I can speak for my time here, and where we've come from the time I started in September 2018. Right. We've come a long way. Um, we have more collaborative conversations going on than when I first got here. Mm-hmm. We have more people looking at how do we help people who have substance use issues, mm-hmm. behavioral health issues, mental health issues. How do we set up a structure so that they don't even engage initially with a first responder or emergency worker, that they engage with a behavioral health professional mm-hmm. or a mental health yep. professional. Yep. Uh, we have people thinking about these proactive interactions that we just talked about, mm-hmm. where we want to get out in the community and find out what people need and make connections to services. And even within the police department, I know they just created a victim service unit that's helping people who are mm-hmm. victims of gun crime mm-hmm. and figuring out what they need. Forget about the crime and yeah, you are yeah, a victim, yeah. we're gonna do that, you? but you're also a person. Mm-hmm. And so how do we engage how do with we that? With the heart? Um, so all of those things are in the right direction, number one, to create a better connection between the community and the police and the city. Yeah. Um, it also empowers people, right? So the one thing you wanna do I came in and said, dream, right? Dare to dream. <laughs> Forget about all the walls you think are Suckers. around you. Yeah, exactly. exactly. All, the, all the walls around you. Forget about that. What would you want to see? Mm-hmm. What do we want it to look like? What do we want this system to look like? And yeah, people can say it's pie in the sky, but if you don't start there, then you can't create processes yeah, that will get you there. For sure, true. And so that has happened. So if we have better relationships between the police and the community, between the city and the community, if we have organizations thinking differently about how they service people and their models, mm-hmm. right? We talk a little about this, that prevention model where all of a sudden, we, instead of we're talking about reentry and assuming and stipulating that everybody's gonna get locked up, taking it as a given that people are gonna get locked up and we gotta help them afterwards, now we're talking about how can we prevent people from getting locked up? How can we divert people? We have the police department thinking about diversion programming, yeah. mm-hmm. which is important because, once again, how can we take part in the way of keeping people out of the system? Mm-hmm. All those things spell a better path for people keeping work, for keeping engaged in families, for being around for their children, uh, for identifying and creating positive role models within yeah. the community. Yeah. I mean, all that's, that's yeah. all you would ask for, right? And so. We're going in the right direction. Good, it's going to happen. I know people look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the role that I think organizations play is making sure that we have the capacity to help people yep. because we can't tell people we want to help you and don't have don't have yeah. enough capacity. Yeah. Them, right. right? We got to be able to take people when they come. And we talked about this too. We also got to change how organizations are structured. People have problems after five o'clock, and, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. and organizations. Yeah. Right now, <laughs> close at five o'clock at night. I yep. don't know who. Right. I don't know who developed that yep. model. Mm-hmm. This you're seems going, like you're, a going, you're going from preaching to meddling. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. It's interesting. I know. I don't care. Here's the thing. I'm already on camera. I'm going to give you the perfect segue. So you've said a lot. The show is called Say That to Say This. So if you wanted to being an outside coming into the city, seeing certain things, what are ways that you would encourage or challenge? those that current love our city. If you mm-hmm. just had the opportunity to say a few things right. and how you would challenge and encourage mm-hmm. in light of all you said, right. what would you say to them? So I would challenge people to find out what is really going on, mm-hmm. right? To make sure you 
ask questions of people who you may not like or you may mm. not feel comfortable with. Mm. I would challenge people to be willing to do things differently than they've always done it. Because mm. we all need to do that yep. because we mm -hmm. get set in our ways. Yep. And I would challenge people, I guess the simplest thing to say, challenge people to be optimistic. Mm. Because one of the other challenges I see here is that everybody's good at talking about what the problem is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And when they talk about the problem, there's an air of inevitability or... You know, just people have given up and assuming that this is just what it's going to be. Right. Mm. And so that's why we lose a lot of people, right? People just leave. As soon as I get the chance, I'm out of the same Right. And that's why I say so. That's not optimal. You, you have to be willing to be optimistic and be willing to do something different. Yeah. And have that courage to, to weather the storm. You know, a quick thing I remember when I was. Um, 19, early 1990s when Harlem was going through a renaissance and they were giving away brownstones like you could get one for a dollar <laughs> for ridiculous stuff and they would even fix it up and you can move in as long as you live there for three years and so this is where I can look at myself right I was like nah like I like the brownstone but I gotta come outside the house I ain't doing that I like it not that much but those people that those people that did that they now own something that's over a million. It's not all Absolutely. about money, by the sure. way. Right, but they got right, something that's sure. over a million dollars because they stuck in there. Yeah. Absolutely. When other people didn't yeah. have the courage yeah. and the optimism yeah. to see it, right? That's good. And so good. it doesn't have to be about money for sure. this conversation. It could just be about knowing that the city is going to come back and it's going to change in the areas that matter, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm all about, you know, you know, you with me. I'm always preaching about North City and yeah. with other pockets of the city that are left behind. You know, that's where we got to make sure it happens. But we also need, if we could be optimistic, then we are willing to put ourselves out there like me to go into rooms where I may be the only one and be willing to say the things that need to be said yeah. in order to make things happen. Man, you got to You got to keep people... Yeah. Courage and hope. Courage and hope. <laughs> yep. Man, we appreciate that. Thank Bro, you. set the bar high for the first guest, <laughs> no, man. No. Set it high. Issues with people coming behind. <laughs> Listen, that's all right. We all work together. I'm there for anybody to come behind me. And that's my, I take that serious, that responsibility that I know I'm not going to be here for the end. Mm -hmm. um, so it's my job to set it up on the tee for the people that come behind me and mm -hmm. keep setting it up. So that when we finally get there, we've all... It's true for all of us, too. On behalf of the city, on behalf of us at Mission St. Louis and the team at yeah. that to say this, we're, man, thankful to have you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your time and your commitment to the city and this yeah. work. Yeah. I know it can be, you know, <laughs> draining from time to time, but, man, just your, your optimism and, yeah. and your commitment, man, is definitely encouraging. Yeah. So We're a better city because of your leadership, too. Oh, so I, thank you, man. I appreciate that. They want some money. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I'll find out later. I'll find out later. I'm gonna have a show. We gonna start passing the, you know, the. <laughs> My show's gonna be what happened was. <laughs> I got it. I got it. That's great, man. But seriously, thank you. Thanks no, you thank time, you. Man. Thank you for what you guys do. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it, and I look forward to continue working with you. Guys. Absolutely. Thank you all for watching another episode of Say That to Say This, and um, we look forward to seeing you next time.